Welcome back. Our first question is, I feel that if someone harms my husband or child, they did it to me. Is this the wrong attitude? It really depends on how you mean did it unto me. Jesus said, if you've done unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. So there's an aspect where we all have a certain interconnection. And if you do harm somebody else and we're more closely connected, we can be impacted by that. But we also each have our own individuality. And when Eve sinned, and was harmed by that sin. Adam still remained sinless until he chose to sin. So we we, ha- we have to have some clarity that we don't allow our identity and individuality to be subsumed into other people so that we take on the battles for other people because, well, well you harm them, I'm going to take on the battle of somebody who's capable. Well, then you're actually infantilizing them and preventing them from overcoming themselves. But it is true that if you find out, and this is one of the challenges in the insidiousness of sin, if one of your loved ones gets harmed by somebody, even though you were not directly harmed, uh, you may be tempted to have resentment and anger and hostility towards the person who did harm. I see this um, commonly in family members of my patients who are in um, domestic violence situations. So a woman who's being beaten by her husband and she won't leave, she chooses to stay, her parents have lots of anger and resentment and hostility and they want to intervene and and uh, and the sin is not actually against the, the, the parents. The sin is against the, the child. But because you love them, you're being hurt by that. And you're now being tempted to have seeds of rebellion and resentment and fantasies of taking baseball bats over and hurting them and so forth and so on. Um, and so uh, it, it's a very interesting question and has, has lots of uh, depths and nuance to it. Did you need something, Dean? No. Okay. Um, but I, I see our individuality as separate and distinct, but we're related to each other and connected, so we're affected by it. But our lines of responsibility, especially for other adults, when we talk about children, it's a little different. We have lines of responsibility for our children. But as adult children, um, the spouses that choose to stay and there's options to leave, they're staying for reasons. I also have seen the opposite side where children, adult children come uh, about their parents who are in dysfunctional marriages and the marriages are dysfunctional. Married to an alcoholic, for instance, or somebody with a gambling problem and they want their mother or their father out of that relationship, but the mother and father won't get out of it. And I said, don't you respect them enough to make the decision that they want to make for their own self? And if that's what they do, it's somehow benefiting them more than it's harming them. And if they don't want to get help, you can't force help upon them. And if you could simply go and grab them and force them into some other living environment, um, would, they, would they appreciate that or be very angry and resentful at you? So uh, I see us as being distinct, but, but being tempted when others uh, harm people we love. Good morning. Uh, let's see. Um, So this is asking about uh, end-time events and about putting home on the market and is it a good time to do this? And I have no, I have no inspired uh, insights as to when you should buy and sell and, and your home uh, towards the end of time. I, I don't have anything to say about that. So uh, this one, how would you define marriage since it is not merely legal or ceremonial declaration? Uh, would that imply that some couples actually marry prior to and or after the ceremony? And if so, could this be used to encourage premarital sex? So how do you define marriage? Is it more than legal? Is it more than the ceremony? And if that's so, then can people um, uh, actually married, get married uh, without a ceremony, without a legal document? And if so, does that encourage premarital sex? So I'm going to tell the person who wrote this, uh, if you were a student in my classroom, 
uh, at the university, I would, and you came to this question with me, I would tell you, go home, answer your questions, come back to me with your answers, and then we'll discuss it. So that's, that's your assignment. Go home, answer your own questions, tell me why, what is marriage, what is marriage as God design, what's marriage as state design, what, what are the parameters of that. Uh, I, will, I will say this much, though. You can't have premarital sex if you're married. <laughs> uh, I won't say any more about that. I'll let you reflect on that. Because this question actually was all about what is marriage, and if you, if you, if you take this view of marriage, and this is marriage, then can, does it increase premarital sex? Not if it's marriage, it doesn't, right? <clears throat> uh, I counsel clients healing from complex trauma, and I'm learning more about dissociation in my traumatology doctorate at Liberty. Smile. <laughs> it is my understanding that shame tends to get absorbed into victims of abuse and then gets locked away in the trauma. How do you recommend helping abuse victims integrate this with shame and or other emotions uh, that uh, they dissociate from? So dissociation is a process of... Um, being out of awareness of aspects of emotional or cognitive processes that are happening. So we've all done it to minor degrees. If you've ever been in your own head thinking about something while you're driving, and you're driving and you miss your, your turn, and you go, I just missed my turn, okay? That's a, a, a dissociative event because you were not consciously aware you were driving. You didn't get in a wreck. You didn't turn. You didn't. You, all the functions of life you're doing effectively, but you were not aware of where you were on the road, and therefore you passed a, a decision. That's that's an example of dissociation. Okay, so dissociation that becomes pathological is when you're actually going through um, long periods of of observable function, but your individuality is not in the moment. You're somewhere else, okay? Um, dissociative disorders would be the classic multiple personality disorder in which um, a person dissociates and has a different identity taking control and living, but the real self is, is hidden somewhere in their unconscious mind somewhere. That, that would be the classic example of a dissociative disorder. Trauma victims use dissociation, and the, way that, and the reason they use dissociation is because they're in a, and, and most of us here would do it. If you were in a real trauma situation, where you were being brutalized and you couldn't physically escape, then a psychological defense is to escape in your imagination and go somewhere in your imagination so that you are not right now processing in awareness the horror that's happening to you. Okay, so it's a defense mechanism to avoid serious pain when there's no other avenues of escape. Okay, that's when it's used in this way. So trauma victims, if it, and the younger a person is in trauma, then the more likely it is that this type of dissociation becomes an, a learned mode of dealing with any life stress, not just trauma stress, so that they're in any situation and they're starting to feel emotion uncomfortable, they run away in their imagination, dissociate from that. That's what dissociation uh, is. So if you're dealing with trauma victims, there's lots of ways to approach this, and there's no one single way that works, but the, the idea is that you want to help integrate that person, and you want to help them realize that all of these different parts, and we all have different parts, if, if you are a parent... Um, um, when you go home with your three-year-old, you put on a different role or a different persona uh, on the ground with the toys with the three-year-old than you do in your office dealing with a subordinate. 
Okay, a different hat you wear. A Bible teacher role is different than a, uh, a a surgeon in the OR role. We have these different hats, and you could call them personas. But all of those different hats we're capable of putting on and, and, and moving around. A husband and a wife uh, in, in their in their uh, honeymoon suite have different hats that they wear, roles that they play, than they do with anyone else. Okay, uh, but that doesn't make them different people. They're all the same people, but they can they can put on different personas uh, appropriate to the circumstances who they're dealing with. But they're still the same identity, same core person inside. Dissociative people tend to to fragment those more, such that those different personas can take on elements where where the the when you're playing with your three year old later, you don't the part of you that's going to deal with uh, the adult roles may not retain awareness of what you did when you were playing with your three year old. They're more compartmentalized kind of thing is the psychological um, dynamics involved because we compartmentalize to protect the vulnerable aspects of ourself that we're being exploited and we're being abused. So this is my understanding. Of what's going on. The role of the trauma therapy is the integration to help that person be able to break down those defensive barriers that they have put up for themselves to make themselves feel safe so they can integrate back into a whole and they have all those pieces with one individual self. And there are multiple approaches to that. Uh, and uh, you should have that overall vision and have that conver- conversation with them about doing that rather than validating that there are separate people. I've had multiple multiples. I've had multiple, multiple personality disorder patients over the years, and uh, and this approach has always been very successful for me. Um, validating that this was an adaptive thing for them, it was something that helped protect them, it was something that was uh, useful at that place and stage and time in their life, but it is no longer helpful and adaptive now they're an adult, now they're in a safe place, and that these different elements are still all part of the same person. To the degree that they have had other therapists that actually taught them that they're actually different people, not one person, uh, fragments of the same person, um, you know, being disassociated off to help make a psychological protective cocoon um, that makes it harder. And I've had some that have had come from therapists who actually talk about, well, yes, your one body has multiple different people living in it. No, it doesn't. It has one person who has fragmented their sense of self to, in a traumatic environment to try to protect that self, and we need to introduce and integrate them all back together. This is part of the approach that would be important to take. Talking about uh, gets locked into the uh, body and so forth. There are certain physiological responses that trauma can cause in people, neurobiological pathways that can be formed, um, uh, uh, neurological and vagal reactions. Vagal is the, is the nerve that innervates all your autonomic systems of your body. And those things can be um, can be upregulated in trauma so that you become hypervigilant and hyperreactive uh, so you startle more easily and uh, and you're less, less trusting and you're and you can't unwind and sleep as well and you have lots of physiological symptoms and then those become cues that cue you to a threat even when there's no threat because there's an interaction going both ways when you have a threat you alert your body the the fight and flight response to get ready for it but then your body can alert your mind that there's potentially a threat if when your heart rate picks up and your blood pressure picks up and so forth and so this can become a negative reinforcing loop and that's what it means about being in the body so teaching relaxation and how to unwind and calm the uh the parasympathetic the sympathetic nervous system uh can be also helpful so that's i guess we'll stop there because we could do a whole series lecture on this (laughs) what is the purpose of the seven last plagues uh if probation is already closed so it depends on how you understand and who's and what law lens you're looking through okay the bible tells you very clearly if you read it in context that in Revelation chapter 7, there are four angels holding back the four winds of strife. 
And these four angels have been described in Revelation 7 as having the power to harm the land, the sea, and the air, and so forth. Their power to harm is by what? Letting go what they're holding back. God has been restraining the demonic powers for a long time. Now, the wrath of God, which is being poured out without mixture, according to Romans 1, happens because... Well, they didn't think the knowledge of God was worthwhile to be retained. They strained the truth of God for a lie. They become so settled in the lie. Therefore, Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, therefore God takes an action. What's he do? God lets them go. And so if you put all the scripture together, you understand that God's wrath is God letting go what he's holding back. And so the seven last plagues are God's stepwise release of the restraint that he has put on. And why has he been restraining? Why has he been restraining the powers of darkness? Why? For people to be sealed. For people to be sealed for, for, through all human history, for people to be saved. So God has been, uh, understand the world in which we live right now, since Adam and Eve sinned, is in an artificial bubble of reality. This world is protected by God's grace and is out of phase, if you will, with the rest of God's universe. In the rest of God's universe, you want to get a glimpse of that? Any, any, any text in scripture where they give you a little glimpse of what's happening in heaven, the Ancient of Days takes his seat and rivers of fire come out from before him, and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. And, and the new heaven and the new earth, it says, will not need a sun or moon to light the place because God's presence will be its light. The natural state in God's universe is that God is present with his life-giving glory that looks to us like something like fire, but it's not combustion because we live in this fire. But as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, our earth was cut off from the free flow of God's unveiled presence. He's been veiling himself, creating this bubble of reality to allow for the plan of salvation to be realized so that we can be one back to unity with him so he can unveil himself again. The seven last plagues are the seven stepwise release of his restraint of satanic forces because at the end of time, ultimately, God allows things to play out as reality and his laws dictate. Satan gets more liberty. He gets more freedom. And what happens? Things fall apart. That's what happens because he doesn't have the ability to create, nor does he have the ability, according to Scripture, all things were made by him and all things hold together through him. God holds together all nature and governs and all the laws that govern nature. Satan doesn't. And so as God lets go, things become more chaotic. So that's why it's happening. And, and, and by the way, and, why, and again, another, another element to put in here, according to Scripture, where's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth? Hearts and minds that believe. We're the temple. And as billions of human beings harden their heart permanently, so there's, th- there's, there's historically three groups of people on earth. Those that are sealed of God and can't be shaken from it. Job is an example. Daniel, Shadrach, no, fiery furnace would not shake Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from it. They're sealed to God. Those sealed to Satan and no amount of, of witness or, or anything would, would shake people out of their loyalty to Satan. Judas would be an example of that person who even after what he did, he went and hung himself rather than repent like Peter repented, okay? And then there's that middle group who haven't been sealed to God and haven't been actually sealed to Satan. They're in that valley that can go either way. As the events unfold, uh, that middle group goes away. And people will either seal to God or harden against, and the Bible tells us that wide is the road that leads to perdition and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. So the majority of the world is likely going to be hardening their heart against the, and as, as that happens, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit is shut down. And the Holy Spirit is slowly removed from the earth as human hearts shut him out. And Satan gets more power and the seven last plagues are unleashed as he is loosened. 
So that's, that's why what's happening. What exactly is gossip? Are you gossiping if you vent to your sister about someone who hurt you? Are you gossiping if you share with your husband something your neighbor told you? I am honestly not sure what classifies as gossip, and I don't want to participate in it, but I am not sure what classifies. Gossip is about sending information with the intention of harming another. It's, it's, it's self, it's, it's about, it's, that's what it's primarily, it's about sending information to advantage yourself at their expense, so it could be either, I'm going to make myself look good by making them look bad, or it could be to hurt them. Either way, but that's what gossip is. If you have been hurt by somebody and you need to talk to somebody to work through your pain so that you can heal, that is not gossip. And that could be a, a, a brother or sister, a spouse, a counselor, a pastor. There's lots of people we can go talk to to help process the problem, the issue, to come to a solution. The Bible actually tells us if somebody's offended you, you go to talk to them. If that doesn't work, you go find one or two brothers from the church and you go and tell them and you go together to talk to them. That is not gossip because the intention is to bring reconciliation and healing, not to cause harm. Gossip is intended to harm. So it's not about restricting important information. It's necessary to be discussed with people. Further, you can share information that is not gossip that is vital to share. You come to know factually with certainty that such and such a person molests kids, maybe because you were molested by them when you were in Pathfinders. And they just moved back to the community and they put in to be the Pathfinder leader. And when you were a Pathfinder, they molested you. But you never told anybody. To share that information is not gossip. Would you want the, that person to come back in and lead the Pathfinders again? No. no, that is not gossip. That is wise use of information. You go, no, it could be gossip if you, if you blabbed it to the whole community. But if you went to the key people privately behind the scenes uh, and shared that information for the purpose of protecting the children that haven't been exploited, that is not gossip. Amen. Good morning. What is your understanding of the abomination and desolation in chapter 11 of Daniel? the abomination of lies that desolates the character of God in the hearts and minds of people. That's it. That's it. The abomination of lies, primarily imperialism. The, the abomination that causes desolation symbolically was, was Rome that came and desolated the temple. Romanism is imperial law that came out of Rome that infected the church, which infected the spirit temple. And it says in, Thales- uh, in 2 Thessalonians that the man of sin will rise, set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. He set himself up in God's spirit temple, proclaiming himself to be God, when Christianity accepted the idea that God's law functions like human law, and therefore God runs like a, his universe like a Roman Caesar, and he's imperial, he's legalistic, he's authoritarian, the source of pain, suffering, and death comes out from God. This is the abomination that desolates the soul, and it faces the image of God in man. That's what I understand it to be. Thank you for explaining imputed righteousness. It really makes sense to me versus the candy-coated rotten apple theory. Um, why does it seem people would rather believe that instead of the transformation and free, freeing, healing, destructive life? Uh, because they're, they're stuck in imperialism. I will tell if you accept without question that God's law works like human law, if that's your premise, then God has to punish and somebody has to do something to pay. And you go down this hole because the, the founding premise is wrong. Once you, you have to come back, and this is the controversy in heaven began over a question of God's law and governance, and it will end over the same issue. And we are called to present him as creator, 
Call people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. And this is the message for this time in human history, to help people see God as creator and the God of love and his laws and design laws. So, And when you do that, then it makes perfect sense that he's out to heal and restore. I want to say something else that I forgot to say in class about the question of where does death come out from. Remember that question we talked about in class today? The imperial model has death coming out from God as a punishment for sin. And in that model, therefore, they teach that the source of life and the source of death have the same source. They both come from God. Which means they teach the eternal existence of both life and death. This is Eastern philosophy. Eastern philosophy, in order to have a universe, it has to be in balance. The, the light and the dark, the yin and the yang, the good and the bad, the, the good and the evil, and life and death will all exist for all eternity in order to have balance in the universe. That's Eastern philosophy. This is Satan's vision and Satan's dream. Satan wants to co-rule the universe where Jesus and God run the good and he runs the evil and the bad. Okay, The penal substitution theology teaches the same thing when it teaches that uh, death comes from God as the just punishment for sin. Therefore, death has its origins in the heart of God and it will exist for all eternity because God's the source. But this is not scripture. God is the source of life. Death comes from breaking your connection with the source of life. It does not actually come from God. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and the truth that you've revealed to us. We ask that you will finish your work in our life. Bless this ministry. Bless those who would share these final truths uh, for for Earth's history uh, with the world, that we can light this world for your soon return. We pray in your holy name. Amen.